Hey guys, it's me, Sophia Amoruso, the host of Girl Boss Radio. We have a guest today that I'm really excited about. She spoke at the first Girl Boss rally. Sarah Rob O'Hagan is going to join us to talk about leadership and performance. But first, I want to talk a little bit about Rent the Runway. We love mm-hmm. Rent the Runway. We do. Yeah, uh, Jen Hyman has been on this show. Yes. She is, I almost said baller. She's like, she's such a thought leader, like, She's so smart. She's mm-hmm. done such an amazing job in like a time of retail apocalypse and watched my company kind of go under while hers like just kept growing. And I mean, it's the world of it's the era of the shared economy and uh, she's doing it for fashion. She's also speaking at our upcoming rally, right? Yeah, the Girl Boss Rally, April 28th in Los Angeles. So we're excited to have her. So can you tell our audience what Rent the Runway is? Because you've used it. I did. It's really easy. On Rent the Runway, you can rent dresses, tops, bottoms. Um, they dry clean them. Insurance is included. You can borrow styles for a big event or even just a work party. They have clothes for every day. day. Yeah, yeah. It's pants, tops, really anything. A lot of amazing brands. Tory Burch, Theory, Vince, Tibby. DVF, and plenty more, more than 450 designers. Wow. You can browse photo reviews from members to find the right fit. If you're renting for that big event, they throw in a free backup size for you. Cool. This month only, Girlboss Radio listeners can get 25% off their first four-day rental or their first month of Rent the Runway Unlimited, their premium subscription. Visit renttherunway.com. That's exactly how it sounds. R-E-N-T-T-H-E-R-U-N-W-A-Y.com. Or download their iPhone app. Enter code GIRLBOSS at checkout to unlock 25% off. That's code GIRLBOSS at checkout. Success. It's such a complicated idea, and yet for so long we've all collectively subscribed to a single definition of the word, which was likely given to us by a white-haired dude somewhere in a boardroom in the 1960s. And there's nothing wrong with that definition, with the notion of climbing a corporate ladder with a singular focus. But it's time to make space for a few other definitions, for side hustles and well-being and failing forward, and for the idea that success is a wild ride, not the destination at the end of it. Join me for a journey into the lives of women who are redefining success and paving the way for others with grit and grace. I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder and CEO of Girlboss Media, and this is Girlboss Radio. Sarah Rob O'Hagan is a high-energy combination of disruptive business leader, fitness fanatic, and cheerleading mom. She's been named among Fast Company's most creative people in business and as one of Forbes' most powerful women in sports. As chief executive officer of the fastest-growing indoor cycling company, Flywheel Sports, she's currently innovating the business through digital content and services. Before that, Sarah became an internationally recognized reinventor of brands, having served as global president of Gatorade, where she successfully led the business through a major repositioning and business turnaround. At Gatorade, which was a very tough turnaround, it was like one of the most high-profile, difficult business experiences I could be in. And so many days just wanting to quit because it was so hard. And I remember telling myself, you can't, you can't, like you've got to stick it out long enough to know 
what becomes of this? Like my boss would always say to me, it's just as hard to get to the other side when you're halfway through a river as it is to go back. So keep going. And then went on to become the global president of the luxury fitness company Equinox, where she reinvented the brand through significant technology transformation. Sarah has held leadership positions at Nike and Virgin and some of the best brands in the world. And she's the author of Extreme You, a book on unleashing your potential. I realized that we have this crazy culture emerging where we just celebrate success, 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 and we never tell the truth about what it took to get there. Today, Sarah joins us to talk about business innovation, inspiring human performance, and bouncing back from major fails. As women, when we talk ourselves out of the scary opportunities, you just have to say it's only scary on day one. And day two, it's a, even a tiny bit less scary. And day three, four, five, it will get better. And I think that almost helps you break down that scariness to something that is surmountable. But first, I need to find out what's going on here at the Girl Boss offices. And for that, I turn to my co-host, Maggie Renshaw, who always knows. Hey. How are you? Good. Alrighty, I wanted to mention another little series we have on girlboss.com. It's called Bedtime Stories. And it's not another Humpty Dumpty nursery rhyme. Womp, womp. <laughs> oh, yeah, that. You know, you know me and my puns, womp, womp, my womp. jokes. Womp, womp, womp. <laughs> No, but seriously, it's a really cool feature where our team is invited into um, the homes of really interesting women. They allow us to come in and capture their real life rituals and evening routines, which is cool because I think we all kind of want an in on that bedtime ritual and that bedtime story. And I think, you know, we've seen them get ready for events. We've seen uh, people's houses. We've asked them what their morning productivity schedules are like. But it's really interesting to think about how we end our days because how we end our days teases up for the next day. So that's what Bedtime Stories is all about. We have original photography. And our first one was with my friend Juna, who just had a baby. Mm -hmm. She is a stylist and mom and cool lady who is very tall. And she lives a fairly holistic lifestyle, right? So her skincare regime and her skincare products are all very She's super organic. She had an at-home birth. Oh, my God. Like no <laughs> medical intervention whatsoever. Great. Just like the whole thing, like the way a draft does it. <laughs> The way is a giraffe weird? does it. Is that weird to say because she's tall? I didn't mean to. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. I was just thinking. Like the way animals giving... do it. Well. I might. I mean, if I'm so lucky to have a kid, I'd probably do the same do thing. It. You get to crawl in bed right afterward. If you can do it. Anything where you get to crawl in bed right afterward. I'm game Speaking for. of bedtime stories. Anyway, that's off um. topic. <laughs> so who's the next woman on our bedtime stories? She docket. is awesome. Lashane Stewart. She went viral, quote unquote, after sharing photos of herself wearing this cool Thrasher shirt and like a DIY frayed skirt. And she received a little backlash from trolls that were trying to knock her down because of her weight or what she was doing with the the skirt, her style. Stupid, but she kept going and she was like, I'm not going to listen to these people and kept posting really awesome, just raw natural, cool photos that embody who a woman should be. And so her Instagram handle is instagram.com slash L-U-H-S-H-A-W-N-A-Y. I'm going to go check out these photos right now Mm -hmm. and go to girlboss.com on Monday when this drops. Yep. Mm -hmm. Next Monday.
Now grab a bottle of water and get ready for a workout with the energetic and inspiring Sarah Robohagen, CEO of Flywheel Sports. So you're from New Zealand. Tell me what it's like to grow up in New Zealand. What was your childhood like? Four million people and 50 million sheep in New Zealand. Wow. <laughs> sheep are cute, though. You can like, know. Count, count them as you go to sleep. And, I know. Like, Wherever I go around the world, people are like, you must have great sweaters. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're good at that. <laughs> Here's the fun fact about New Zealand. First country in the world to give women the vote. Are you ready for that? Wow. In 1892, and it, in the U.S. it happened in 1920. So that's a long time earlier. And I've long felt that that actually – you know, had a had a strong aspect on the culture down there, and and I, you know, I felt like as a young girl growing up, it never occurred to me I couldn't do anything that a guy couldn't do. You know, and right now we have a 36 year old female prime minister who's pregnant with her first child, and her husband's going to be a stay at home dad. How cool is that? Wow, New Zealand <laughs> for the win. <laughs> Were you an athletic child? I mean, so much of your career has been in sports and, you know, sports drinks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> were you were you on sports teams? Like, was there early signs that your career would take the, the route that it, that it did? Well, there were certainly no early signs of talent. I'll start there. So I was, yes, a very sporty kid. I really, really wanted to be a professional athlete. But I was not very good. I never made the A team in anything. <laughs> so um, that wasn't such a good sign. But I was also actually super into music. I studied um, classical music, sing singing, piano and violin right through till I was 18 and was kind of thinking that music was going to be a path that I took. But again, didn't quite have the talent. But I do think what has been interesting for me as I look at how my career has developed is those two things mashed up together in some level, I think, were formative experiences that really helped me be a sort of innovator in the sports world, you know. But you started in airlines. How yeah. did you go? <laughs> how did you go from airlines to sports? Take me through the chronology of, of this trajectory. Yeah, so my first job out of college was working for Air New Zealand, which is the country's national airline. And my career strategy was nothing other than they will fly me out of the country to other places. So I need to work there. It was very simple. And I love New Zealand and I always will love New Zealand, but it's a tiny country at the bottom of the world and, and I wanted to see the world. And so that was kind of how I ended up working in the airlines and they relocated me to Los Angeles when I was in my early 20s. And from there, I was like, okay, now it's on me. How do I get to work for the other brands and businesses that interest me? Sarah's career has allowed her to work with some of the world's most iconic brands. Her early successes included the breakthrough marketing campaign she led for Virgin Atlantic Airways in collaboration with the Austin Powers movie, if you remember it, in which she rebranded the airline Virgin Shaglantic and turned a 747 into an international flying showcase. And I had always had this crazy dream uh, since college that I wanted to work for both Nike and Virgin. Those were the two brands that I just like grew up absolutely loving. And so in my head, I was just like, I'm going to set about making that happen. And it was a long and winding road. Um, and certainly getting to Nike, I'd already been rejected, I think, twice by the time I finally got a job there. But, you know, I think that's proof that Sometimes, you know, you don't take no for an answer. So your first job was on the advertising side at Air New Zealand. Is that something that you studied in college? Did you go to college? Yes, 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 yes. I went to 
college in New Zealand and I studied international business and marketing were my majors, um, did a Bachelor of Commerce. So I started in, and actually my first job was, um, I was on a graduate intern program. And so I actually got to be in every aspect of the airline in the first year, like three months in, you know, finance and three months in marketing and three months in, you know, load balance and control and stuff like that, which gave me an ability to see where the the parts of the business I really liked. And that's how I ended up shifting towards marketing and then obviously advertising. Loyalty marketing was really where my roots started, I would say. And you moved to the U.S. at 22 years old. Mm-hmm. That was that, a, was that scary for you at all? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't know anybody in this country except for the person from Air New Zealand who had hired me. But I was also super wide-eyed and naive. Like, it, these were the days, you guys remember um, Beverly Hills 90210 mm-hmm. and Melrose Place? Like, literally, <laughs> that's what I thought I was moving to. I was like, how awesome is this? So I was just so naively wide-eyed that this was a great adventure. And it wasn't until I landed in Los Angeles and discovered that, you know, the 405, if you go from – as you well know, Santa Monica to the Hollywood Bowl, that's like half of my country in New Zealand, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So it was definitely um, scary, I think, once I got there. But I would also say, I think when you're that young, it's an adventure, you know? Yeah. And what do you think you learned from those early jobs that led you to where you are today? I think the biggest thing I learned, and it's something I really encourage young people that work, I work with to, to try and catch the lesson is is what I would call proactivity. Like, I mean, even my very first job out of college, I applied for Air New Zealand and I actually got rejected. In those days, we used to say, we used to call it getting a PFO letter, please fuck off. And and, and they, they didn't want to hire me and I didn't take no for an answer. And I said, actually, I'm going to come back around and go to the recruiting people and put together a plan to explain why a, that you should hire me and B, I can add value. And it worked and it helped me to realize like even once I got to this country, there were several initiatives where, you know, there were projects that no one was doing that I just chose to step up and take on, not because anyone asked me to, but because I saw it as a learning experience. And I think as a result, you know, I I ended up, I guess, getting a lot more experience in a short amount of time than some people around me may have. I think it was a great lesson to carry forward. And you were fired from a couple jobs. Oh, yeah. I mean, hopefully everyone on this, that's listening to this podcast has been fired because it's, I don't know, I think it's actually a really important formative thing for everybody. I but, but what would you agree. say was your biggest mistake in your career and what did you learn from it? So the first time I got fired, I was 26 and I was working for Virgin Megastores, which many of your listeners probably don't even know what that was, but we used to actually buy music on little round things that go round and round from a record store, believe it or not. CDs? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Those days. And I joined Virgin Megastores right at the year that Napster came along. So the whole industry was being disrupted. And I was coming off having worked for Virgin Atlantic Airways where I was really crushing it and doing well. And what actually happened to me was I just got so cocky and so ahead of my skis because I just thought that I was you know, crushing it and doing really well. And I completely 
overlooked the bits of the business that I didn't know. I was in a new business. It was a business in crisis and was very unwilling to ask for help. I was very unwilling to be vulnerable about what I didn't know. And I was just like a rogue force in this very distressed team that was trying to turn a business around. And so the day I got fired, it wasn't like, hey, we're laying off a bunch of people. It was like, one, it's you. And <laughs> they, they literally gave me um, a one-way ticket back to New Zealand. So it's like, you're so bad. We don't like you wow. in our company or our we're country. We're deporting you. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was pretty um, – yeah, it's bring me bring me down to size. Um, but I lost my visa and my green card application. I mean, it was pretty difficult to go through uh, – but to be honest with you, I love what you just said about we should all belong to the Getting Fired Club because, God, there's nothing more than that experience to teach you a giant dose of self-awareness incredibly quickly um, yeah. and a lot of <laughs> grittiness and resilience and humility and all those characteristics that you're going to need later in your career because it's not always going to be easy. Sarah has made many mistakes along the way, but she's so good at picking herself up and moving forward. I asked her to share some of her strategies for getting past the quote-unquote embarrassing shit and epic fails, as she refers to them. That actually led to, you know, the beginning of me becoming successful in my career, I think partly because I just became really hungry to not fuck up and to, to earn my stripes and do well and not get over my skis. Wait, so you went back to New Zealand. Did you just get on a raft and send out some resumes? Like, how did you no. make it back? <laughs> so what I actually, <laughs> I didn't go back. I had three months to stay in this country. Otherwise, I would get deported. And so, and the funniest part of the story is my now husband arrived in uh, LA the day after this happened. So here he thinks he's moving from New Zealand to America to be with this Hi, you know, amazing businesswoman. And I, I'm like, oops, I just got fired. So we had three months to figure out how to survive. And like we were selling everything in the apartment, you know, almost sold the car. That was the last thing that nearly had to go. But I just, I sort of made getting a job my job. And I just, every day I was hustling like I can't even describe just trying to meet people and eventually a connection worked out that I landed at the company called Atari. Hmm, oh, wow. Yeah. Which was actually an epically bad decision because I ended up getting laid off from there two years oh, later. No. But in a way, who cares? It kept me in the country. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've worked with such amazing brands, Virgin, mm. Nike, Equinox, Gatorade. Mm. Like, at what point did you begin getting recruited to these great brands? Or did did you have, you know, was there a certain point where you were stopped looking for jobs and, and jobs came looking for you? That's a great question. Because I'd say the first one, so going, you know, my first job and then obviously Virgin, I really hustled to get the job. And I went out of my way to network and get to know people at Virgin Atlanta because that's where I just really wanted to work. And then... Nike was pretty much the same. And it was after I'd been at Nike six years that I finally got headhunted for the job at Gatorade. And I think ever since then, it's probably been a bit the other way around. But I do think it it shouldn't, like I've often thought to myself, one should never rest on their laurels and wait for opportunities to come, whether it's a job opportunity, a career development opportunity, a promotion opportunity. I do think it's better to get in the mindset of this is what I want and I'm going to go figure out how to make it happen. So when 
you do this networking because it sounds like networking has really been important for your career and it mm-hmm. is for everybody's but not not everybody understands how to do that some of us are introverts yeah. it's scarier for Definitely. some people than it is for others what works for you and what would you say is a good icebreaker if you're in a room with someone that like you may want to know who you may you may be able to do something with yeah well i actually feel very strongly about this topic for a couple of reasons like the first one is that i think when we're younger in our careers we get rewarded for getting shit done for being the doer and it becomes really hard especially as women because i think we tend to be the ones that over-deliver and get the gold check mark because we over-delivered with getting the presentation written or the spreadsheet done or whatever it is. And when the moment comes where you actually have to spend as much time building relationships as getting cranking through the stuff that you perceive that you have to output, it's a really tough transition. And I think a lot of young women struggle with it and they don't realize that the time you spend building relationships in the end becomes as important because when you become a more senior leader, you have to actually get stuff done through others. That's what it's all about. And so it is about relationships. So that's number one. And then number two, I do believe deeply that quality is more important than quantity. And I think in this day and age, you know, people just think if I've got a giant LinkedIn network, that means I have a network. And I don't think that you do. I think you end up having a network when you have taken the time to really get to know people on a personal level. So to answer your question in practical terms, like when I first got to Nike and I am the most humble human on the planet because I've just lost two jobs in a row, every time I traveled to the head office, instead of just you know doing the meetings that I'd been called there for, I would schedule breakfasts, lunches, workouts with colleagues just to get to know them with no agenda other than to, hey, I want to hear about your journey at Nike and what I what can I learn from you and what can I help contribute to you. And it's just like making friends, you know, and if you just think about it without an agenda, I think that's how real relationships are built. I agree. So you've helped so many brands reinvent themselves and you've reinvented yourself a few times Mm. in your career. And a lot of women look at a job description and if they're not sure that they're 100% qualified, <laughs> yes. they won't even apply. Yes. And you've moved from travel to music to food and beverage to footwear. How have you navigated making those shifts so successfully? Mm. You are completely right that I think we often don't do it because we're scared. We don't have all the qualifications. And You know, I think going from industry to industry, to be honest, it was just naivete. I didn't realize Mm -hmm. how different each one would be. And I I do remember distinctly getting into um, Nike, which is apparel and footwear, and being like, holy shit, this is foreign to me. Like, it couldn't have been different to service-based, you know, businesses like the airlines. And this feeling that everybody else has been here for 15 years, and I'm trying to catch all this knowledge as fast as I can. But you you just have to give yourself the, the credit that that feeling of being so in the deep end is going to get less and less with every single day. And then, you know, a year in, you suddenly feel so much more confident. Two years in, three years in, you're suddenly like crushing it and, and sprinting forward. And so I think as as women, when we talk ourselves out of the scary opportunities – you just have to say it's only scary on day one. And day two, it's a, even a tiny bit less scary. And day three, four, five, it will get better. And I think that almost helps you 
break down that scariness to something that is surmountable. Yeah, people don't really talk about the deep end enough. And that that word just keeps coming up over and over in my head in the past few weeks. And I'm like, oh, we need to have a podcast called The Deep End. (laughs) Just something like The Deep End is a place that we should all find ourselves and that we should continue kind of throwing ourselves into in the same way that some people teach a baby to swim by just literally throwing it in the water. That's right. Yes. It seems maybe I'm not sure if that's a good idea, but people do it and it seems to work. And it's the only way I've ever learned anything. And not not everybody learns that way. But some of us really do have to jump off a jump off a cliff and build an airplane on the way down. And And you have to recognize even if you fail. So what? You learn something. <laughs> yeah, really, literally, so what? Yeah. So you've had an amazing career, and you've transitioned from one role to another. And a lot of our listeners are going to be growing in their careers, moving from one company to another, hopefully, hopefully not jumping around too much because we want our resumes to show that we can stick it out a little bit here and there. But what is a good way to exit a job? Like, what's the right way to leave a company? Um, I mean, first of all, I, I love what you said about, you know, try and find the moments where you can stick it out a bit. Um, I can think, you know, very specifically in my case, um, partly because I got fired a couple of times, I was getting that reputation for jumping around too much. And, you know, and then I stuck it. Nike for six years. And I remember at, at Gatorade, which was a very tough turnaround, it was like one of the most high profile, difficult business experiences I could be in and so many days just wanting to quit because it was so hard. And I remember telling myself, you can't, you can't, like you've got to stick it out long enough to know what becomes of this. Like my boss would always say to me, it's just as hard to get to the other side when you're halfway through a river as it is to go back. So keep going. And so I do think that's a really important piece of advice is I think too often people get fed up quickly and jump quickly and then they don't get the depth of experience that they could have gotten out of it. And then I think when is the good time to leave is when you know that you are getting comfortable and when you don't see the opportunity to be back in the deep end like you just stated before. And I think the way to do it is to run to something, not run from something. Um, And if we're all honest with ourselves, we know the difference when we're making decisions on jobs. And make sure that you're honest with yourself that you're picking the moment to go because there's more for you to develop in a different place, not just because you're fed up or you haven't achieved what you wanted. Yeah. I wrote a piece for our newsletter about about this this trail in, in Kauai called the Kalalau Trail that's considered one of the most dangerous hikes in the world because there's a stretch of it called Crawler's Ledge, which is literally a piece of well, like rock that's like a quarter mile long, just like a tiny little ledge on a sheer, completely sheer cliff that uh, some people just like run across. And I found myself like screaming and crying on on all fours trying to to conquer. Um, and I was so cocky about it. I was like, oh, God, people complain about the roads in Positano and they're just they've never been <laughs> in a city. And um, the people, the reviews of this must be all these like just like flubby people who've like never hiked in their lives. <laughs> and holy shit. But, the you know, what your dad said about you know, it's just as hard to continue, like, to, you know, cross the river when you're halfway through as it is to go back is so true. And sometimes committing to the end 
is, you know, like actually giving yourself no way out is the way to rise to that occasion and throwing yourself in that deep end. I made the mistake on that hike or maybe not, you know, made the brilliant choice of of boating in to the end of the trail. So the only way to get out because there's no cell service or anything is 11, 11 mile hike we did in a day was to cross this uh, this climber's ledge, which had I been doing it on my way in, I would have been like, <laughs> fuck this. I'm turning around. But turning around would have put me in like a yeah. no man's land, which wouldn't have accomplished anything. So I don't know. Yeah, I think there's a lot of. It's um, a great, what's great story. That's a good. I yeah. love that a lot. Give yourself oh. no way out because you will get out. Yeah. You'll have to. And people say, oh, you conquered it. You conquered your fear. And it's like, no, I didn't. I'm still terrified of it, but I did it. You know, it's not It's not even about conquering your fears. It's just about, like, you know, like looking at them and being like, whatever, yeah, whatever for, for now. now. Absolutely. So you're a CEO, but you started in marketing. And I think the CEO title is so... So mystifying sometimes because <laughs> yeah. it's like I wound up a CEO because I started an eBay store and then ran a fashion company and I'm a CEO because I wrote a book and now have a podcast and a team of, you know, 20 people. But like what a CEO means can mean so many things. Some people come up on the finance side. Some people come up on the marketing side. Like at the end of the day, do you consider yourself a marketer? Do you consider yourself just a leader? Like what is the thing that you feel like is like the strongest thing that you bring to the companies that you join? That's a good question. I think one of my bosses, who's a great mentor to me, um, who was my boss at PepsiCo, he always said to me, you should always know what, if you want to be a generalist, which is what a CEO ultimately is, you should always know what your hip pocket skill is and continue to refine and keep it as sharp as possible. So for me, you know, I think what is that hip pocket skill for me? It's, I don't even know if I would call it marketing so much as consumer understanding and visioning and innovation. Like I think mm. what I've always brought to every company I've been to is how do we move this to the next place of where the consumer wants to go? And so I think I've always felt that in every job I've taken, make sure like every president or CEO job, make sure it's one that wants or needs that particular skill set so that I can really it, on a daily basis know that I'm flexing my my greatest foundational strength, because I think as a CEO, you get confidence knowing that you are bringing some value to the team and that enables you to then be vulnerable in the areas that are not your strengths. And for all of us, there are going to be those areas. So I think the the longer or older I get, I suppose, the more I feel like the role of the CEO is about essentially empowering and enabling and developing other people. That's probably my greatest passion as well. And in order to do that, I think you have to have some area of expertise that, that you really bring as value-add to the team. We have a lot more with Sarah Rob O'Hagan coming up, but first, let's talk a little bit about Skillshare. So we like learning here at Girl Boss, don't we? We sure do. And I like learning if it's easy. And Skillshare makes it super easy to learn everything from social media strategy to Google Analytics to time management and all the things we're grappling with that maybe sometimes college didn't teach us. Mm -hmm. 
They have classes on just about anything. You can literally take a class to learn how to solve a Rubik's Cube. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be proud of that if I had to take a class on it, but I, I suggest you do it anyway. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for my listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. That's right. Skillshare is offering Girlboss listeners two months of unlimited access, all the education your heart desires, to over 18,000 classes for just 99 cents. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash Girlboss. Again, go to Skillshare.com. That's S-K-I-L-L-S-H-A-R-E dot com slash Girlboss to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash Girlboss. We're going to continue with Sarah in just a minute, but before we do, I want to talk a bit about our partners at Stitch Fix. So Stitch Fix really revolutionized the way we get dressed. I think there was a time where I would have said like, oh yeah, machines can't predict like what I would want to wear, but Stitch Fix really solved that. And they do have personal stylists who work with you, who look at your style profile. You take a quiz when you go onto stitchfix.com and it really optimizes your time. You can be productive. They'll send you things that they think are great for you. You only have to pay for what you keep and there's no subscription required. You can get your fix monthly, quarterly, or whenever you feel like it. So to get started now, go to stitchfix.com slash girlboss and you'll get 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash girlboss, S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X dot com slash girlboss. To try Stitch Fix today, go to stitchfix.com slash girlboss. Now back to our conversation with Sarah Rob O'Hagan. Sarah has so much energy, it's contagious. I was curious as to what she's like as a manager and how she leads her team. Well, I am definitely a little bit of a process junkie, so I that means that I I tend to have clear sort of written communication of where we're going and who is accountable to what. You know, like um for example, in my current job, we have Sylvia, our amazing amazing program manager that keeps all of the projects on one master schedule that's moving forward and that's a good way of making sure everybody knows what they're accountable to do. But then in terms of developing people, I tend to be much more in the camp that I want to really sort of unleash for the company, bring together everyone's thinking on where are we going and be very clear with them, like here's the mountain we're trying to climb but I'm expecting you guys to figure out how to climb it because that is where your learning and development is going to come from. So in my one-on-ones with people, I'm never going to be saying you need to do it this way. I'm more going to be asking them or challenging them to figure it out and then bounce off with me what other things might they like to think about or ideas to consider on the way through. But I very much want it to be their own um, – thinking because I think it's human nature if if the boss tells you what to do immediately you have no accountability because if it fucks up you can just say oh that's what the boss told me to do whereas if the boss says okay you guys figure out the plan and and go execute it you you'll fight so much harder to make it work and you will sort of get through those moments of learnings and failures which there will be and continue to fight forward to to make it work. And what are some of the really exciting things that you have been working on at Flywheel since you joined? 
So funny you should ask. So a lot. Like we um, just last November, actually, we launched an entire streaming platform called Fly Anywhere. So we are a um, indoor cycling studio cycling business. For those who don't know, we have 42 studios across the United States. And now we've added a um, product called Fly Anywhere. So you can basically buy a bike if you so choose and put it in your home. And we stream four to five live hours of classes every day. And then obviously you can take them um, in the catalog on demand as you choose. So we have pivoted from being a studio only business to a live content production business, which is, as you well know, <laughs> no small feat. And so it's a it's a really exciting time for the company because we're basically trying to figure out how to deliver our content and fitness to people wherever they choose to want to consume it. And so with that is lots of learnings on the way. Forgive me if I'm wrong. Flywheel has their writers compete with one another. Yeah. Is that true? <laughs> Tell me about the psychology of competition as it relates to what you do at Flywheel. Yeah. So we were the first company to put technology on the on an indoor spinning bike. So if you go back to like call it the nineties when spinning was first created and we'd all get into a dark studio and a, and the instructor would yell at you, turn up your resistance and you'd sort of maybe kind of pretend, but <laughs> it didn't really matter if you did or didn't. And we were the first company, our founder, Ruth Zuckerman, um, who was a very, very well-known cycling instructor here in New York, basically came up with this method where the instructor actually would say to you, okay, I want you to have your resistance at this and your output, your your number to be at this, so that every rider was really being held accountable to a set of numbers. And then in addition, we have at the front of the room what we call talk boards, which are, if you choose to participate, you can see yourself on the board. It's like a competition and how much power output you're generating compared to everyone else in the class. So yes, it is very competitive. And as a result, we have attracted a very competitive uh, psychographic. <laughs> we have a lot of people who ride with us who do not let their kids win at Monopoly, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but it's a that is a very deeply woven psychological trait actually in a significant portion of the population. So we've done a lot of segmentation analysis and it's it's quite amazing how there are certain people for whom competition is a very invigorating thing and coming to Flywheel is kind of a, an outlet to, to let that happen. And speaking of competition, you're in an extremely competitive industry. Yes. Um, how do you think about competition or not think about the competition as you lead Flywheel into the future? Yeah, we are in a very competitive industry. That said, I think every industry I've ever been in is incredibly competitive. You know, the airlines, yeah. <laughs> um, sports and apparel, footwear and apparel. Like, I think no matter where you are, there's it's always competitive. And and I think for that reason, I'm quite passionate about particularly women participating in sports and their youth because I think the business, the landscape of business is a competitive one and getting comfortable with winning and losing is really, really important. 80% of Fortune 500 females are people who played sports in high school, you know, so it's there's definitely a connection between those things. And so for us, like when I think about competition, I think about most importantly playing our own game. I think there's a tendency sometimes when um, landscapes are very competitive for people to sort of want to chase the other guy down a rat hole. That's certainly what, when I got to Gatorade, what I inherited was the whole company focused on what Powerade was doing instead of saying, wait, 
what we need to do is serve the athlete better than anybody else. And I feel the same way at Flywheel. I think what's neat is that we have a very, very defined consumer that we're going after. We're not trying to bring in, you know, all the 100 million people in America that work out. We're just going after the ones that really resonate with our position and we want to do the best we possibly can for them. And so we're innovating to make sure we deliver on their needs better than anybody else. So you've worked at some of the best brands on the planet, and I'm just obsessed with brands as someone who's accidentally started too. Yeah. And a lot of our listeners have their own brands or thinking of starting a brand or a business, and any business at this point is a brand. It doesn't matter if you're enterprise or B2B or B2C or making stuff or not making stuff. The power of, of, of brands is uh, you know almost religious <laughs> in nature, and it's something you've spent so much time with. What have you learned about the power of a brand? What are the signs of a great brand? So I think for me, I'm really lucky that I grew up in some of the most iconic and profound brands of our time. And it was amazing to have the experience of journeying through several of them to be able to see what it was that they had in common. And, you know, we often used to use the term at Gatorade, we talk about the fact it was a belief brand. And I think the best brands in the world have a very core belief that they stand for and they never waver from it. And it's something that as consumers that we can really, really connect to. And so number one, I think it's that. And number two, I think what they all have in common, and this is often quite counterintuitive, is to go after a very, very defined audience. Like be ve- like I like to call it, be spectacular for a few, don't be average for many because – Um, Even, you know, Nike, which is now, what, a $50 billion company, they don't waver from the fact that they are serving athletes, but they do it in such a incredibly clear and innovative way that they are a beacon that makes everybody in the world want to buy into what that stands for. And same with Virgin, same with Flywheel. So I always tell people, especially when you're meeting with investors for the first time and they're going to say, well, I want to know that you can capture the widest possible market that you possibly can. (laughs) And it's like, well, the way to do that is to pick a really narrow sliver and make you their number one so that they are so passionate about you that they will beat the drum and really sort of create the community for you. And marketers are some of my favorite people on the planet. Like every (laughs) – one that is really actually like an advisor and girl boss or someone that I'm constantly asking advice of is in some way a marketer or has been a marketer even if they've wound up being a CEO and I don't know what it is and maybe you can answer this for me but I feel like marketers or people that have spent a lot of time in marketing are some of the most out of the box kind of thinkers out there and that kind of work or that kind of person really because the work can be done by all kinds of people can lead you to such in, like an interesting career. On your team, the people who are bringing the brand up with you, who are lifting Flywheel with you or lifting these other brands that you've worked on with you, what are the characteristics of great marketers or great great people who, who can, you know, think about the future, know how to do the job in a large company, you know? Going to a place like Gatorade, you know, you, you might think, wow, like that's you know, that, that's a really square thing. Mm-hmm. But at the end, but it didn't, yeah. you know, if, if you for sitting from the outside, but when you, when I meet these people who run marketing for these 
amazing brands or maybe brands that like are becoming amazing or huge, but like I don't really know that much about them or they're they're not like squares. They're like such interesting people. Like what is it about the people that bring these brands up through culture and make them iconic that allows them to succeed in their jobs? So it's an interesting time to ponder this question because I I deeply believe that the landscape of marketing is shifting very quickly to such a data-driven place that that isn't necessarily a good thing because it means that I think marketers who are having formative experiences today are coming from a place which is test and learn, test and learn, test and learn, and inform yourself only with data, which means they may not be honing the intuition, which I think made the greatest marketers of old. And, you know, I feel really lucky that I grew up at places like Virgin and Nike where we we were taught to deeply, deeply sniff out and understand every underpinning of the culture of our consumer so that you could have an intuition and an instinct for where the consumer might move and where the marketplace m- might move and how you may lead it. And I think I, I worry for the next generation if we don't continue to cultivate that particular skill set because I think the best marketers in the future are going to be equally left brain and right brain. They're going to be able to have really data-driven decision-making, but they can combine it with the instinct, you know, the art and the science going together in a really powerful way. Sarah's book, Extreme You, Step Up, Stand Out, Kick-Ass, Repeat, is her guide for living an extraordinarily successful life. I asked her to tell us more about the book. I'm raising three kids, so we'll start there, um, who are 13, 11, and 9. And they, uh, years ago, when they were a little bit smaller, they started playing youth sports and coming home with participation trophies. And I just could not wrap my head around why we were rewarding children for just showing up. And then at the same time, I noticed in the workplace, the um, sort of entry-level folks coming in, being a little less um, willing to take risks and, and sort of feeling like, you know, I have to have the perfect resume. I have to have the perfect grades. I have to, you know, everything has to look perfect. And recognizing that around me, certainly my own life experience, but the people that I have learned the most from have achieved extraordinary results because they swung hard, because they fucked up and failed along the way, and because they took those learnings and carried them forward. And I realized that we have this crazy culture emerging where we just celebrate success, 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 and we never tell the truth about what it took to get there. You know, I joke about we used to have the 40 under 40, now it's the 30 under 30, the 20 under 20. Soon it's going to be the 10 under 10. I mean, give me a break. It's like we've actually got to take a step back and, like, I believe that, you know, people and you are an amazing amazing role model, Sophia, for doing this, of getting out there and saying, yes, I've become very successful because I also fucked up and I took the learnings forward and I took responsibility for them. So being extreme you, in my terms, is being the most extreme high potential version of yourself. And I believe that happens by taking risks having successes, having fails, becoming very resilient, very gritty, and very humble as a result of those um, so that you can continue to be very comfortable living outside your comfort zone and continuing to grow forward. 
Do you think grit's something that can be taught? Is it something that you teach in your book? Yeah, it's. I actually do because the way I wrote the book, I interviewed 25 people who were, you know, world-level leaders, if you will, everything from athletes to tattoo artists, chefs, um, Angela Aarons from Apple, Condoleezza Rice, you know, total badasses at many different parts of life. And um, because I wanted to sort of put together taking their insights and learnings and also studying many of the brands that um, had inspired me to sort of create a roadmap that people could learn from. And so each chapter actually has very specific, at the end of it, a sort of little toolbox that you can apply to yourself. Because what I found, particularly going around talking about the book, is it's almost like when I come in, you know, storm in to give a speech in a college auditorium and I'm dropping F-bombs everywhere and talking about how I got fired, it's like you see everybody's shoulders go down and they're like, oh, fuck, I'm actually allowed to screw up and we can talk about it, you know? And I'm like, yes, you can. And here's a roadmap if you want to just dig in and make the best of yourself, which seems to work. Before she left, I asked Sarah to tell us about her most recent Girlboss moment. You know what? It was this weekend, me and my daughter, who's nine, her name's Gabby. She's a total boss. G, G boss. Look at that, Gabby. And we decided to tuck ourselves away in my bed and watch like back-to-back episodes of This Is Us. (laughs) And we talked and talked and talked about all the themes that come out of that great show. And it was just It was an indulgent moment of mother and daughter, but it was such a neat moment of hearing her innocent little mind sort of process what she was seeing. It felt pretty special to me. And one of the things we're cracking here at Girlboss Radio is this concept of success, which, you know, does seem like it's the 40 under 40 or the 30 under 30 (laughs) or the cover of Forbes or whatever the fuck I ended up doing that like isn't really success like at the end you know it's like my life is pretty much the same it's nice I'm glad I you know I checked those things off but it was kind of at the detriment of the women who were following me thinking that that's what mattered or that that was an end goal in and of itself and it's not success should be so much richer than just being that like basically achieving the dream of the 70-year-old white man, right? (laughs) What is your definition of success? My definition of success is is to leave a great legacy behind me. And that may be as simple as three wonderful human beings that go on to do great things in the world and leave a positive impact in whatever way, shape, or form that is. And I think to me, that's it. It's like, I so agree with you about the 70 year old white man's version of success. It's not about money for me. It's not about, you know, articles or any of that bullshit. It's about, can I go to my grave and say, I positively impacted other people's lives. And I think that's a very fulfilling thing to say that you did. Thank you guys so much for joining me on another episode of Girl Boss Radio today. Please subscribe, share the show with your friends if you love it, share it on your social media, leave us a rating in Apple Podcasts, and we'll be back next week 